0: What is up? This is Evan Lovett, and thanks for tuning in to my podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett, an Odyssey original brought to you by yours truly, your host, Evan Lovett, where you may know me from my social media page, LA in a Minute. I'd love to invite you along for a personal and intimate ride as I share interesting facts about all sorts of things you didn't know that you needed to know. Be entertained and informed as I bring you into my mind to see the world through my lens. There's history everywhere, as long as you know where to look. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 33, coming to you from my favorite place to be, the I Am Studios right here in the heart of L.A., And actually, you know what? Wherever you are is the heart of LA because we're all a part of this amalgamation that makes Los Angeles truly special, just like this week's episode. This is a special episode. We're talking about my top five hidden gems in Los Angeles. These are five places that you might know. You probably know at least three or four of them. And I certainly knew about in some capacity as landmarks. But these are places that have become so much more treasurable, is is that a word, just even more historic, iconic, and significant once I knew the history. So I want to share all those nuggets and explain why, and always, that LA is a city that rewards exploration. There's history everywhere, as long as you know where to look. These are the top five hidden gems in Los Angeles. All right, y'all, let's get into it. So as usual, we start with something that happened in L.A. this week. Happens every week. People ask me for suggestions. Where should I go? What should I do? Or I follow you from Toronto and I'm coming to L.A. for five days. What should I do? Or yo, I've done everything in L.A. What's a cool thing I haven't done? So I'm putting this list together and I always keep kind of a running list of things I need to do an episode of L.A. in a minute on and I always see what I have done. Maybe I need to update some stuff. But it got to clicking in my mind. I want to put together hidden gems. And again, a lot of these are in plain sight. These are things we see, we we maybe think about, maybe we don't. But things that I've explored that I'm like, you know what? These need a little bit more shine. So without further ado, I'm going to start. LA hidden gem number five. The San Antonio Winery. This one is really, really cool. Okay, This is a fantastic way to spend a Saturday, a Sunday, or if you could sneak away even a weekday. San Antonio Winery is the oldest and largest winery in Los Angeles. Over 100 years old. It's been producing wine since 1917. This is no small feat because 99% of LA's wineries were shut down during Prohibition. And again, LA used to be wine country. That's why, that's sort of what resonates with me about this. But let me let me tell you more about the winery, okay? It's still in the original location on Lamar Street. And again, talk about hidden in plain sight. You can see this thing off the 5, the 101, the 110. It's, it's like nestled in this industrial district in what is essentially the flats of Lincoln Heights, right? Kind of near Chinatown. And now... I'd known about it, and I'd seen it, but I didn't go until earlier this year, and I went with my wife, and we had an awesome, awesome day. Not just because of the history there, which is sensational, but it's just a good, fun experience, a great way to spend the day. And keep in mind, San Antonio Winery is responsible for Stella Rosa, which I have to admit, it's passed through my lips many a time. And honestly, who hasn't imbibed on some of this sweet, low alcohol nectar because Stella Rosa is the highest selling wine in California. And the San Antonio winery is where it was based, where it came from. And when I say low alcohol, low alcohol, it's 5.5%, by the way, right? That's similar to a beer, but it's about half of where most wines usually fall. But let's get back to this. LA as wine country. I'm talking that Los Angeles, it was the preeminent wine domain of California. The state known worldwide for its vino. I'm going to go back on you. How did that happen? How did LA become wine country for a while? So in 1771, the San Gabriel Mission was founded and vine cuttings were planted. And the San Gabriel Mission became the first California winery. Okay. And then commercial wineries started popping up. They'd use cuttings from the grapevines, vines. And by the 1820s, there was a Frenchman. Jean-Louis Vignez, my accent's terrible, I know I got that wrong, but he imported French vines to Los Angeles. And by 1833, he was working on improving and improving the city's wine, and it was the first commercially viable wine. And he became a sensation, and Los Angeles became a sensation known for its wine throughout the region. By the end of the 19th century, LA had more than 100 vineyards. Think about that. Los Angeles was known as the city of vines. The grapevine was even on the LA city seal. That's how important grapes and wines were to Los Angeles about 130 years ago. Now, we all know the story with LA. Urbanized, it's always a city of the future. In the 20th century, that basically ended the dreams of LA's dominance in wine. Property values skyrocketed. Vineyards were ripped up. And it's pretty much forgotten about, except where it's immortalized at the city's most famous intersection, Hollywood and Vine. As well as the only known of the original grapevines in Los Angeles, which is on the Avila Adobe, oldest residence in Los Angeles, at Alvarez Street. And the San Antonio Winery, which dates back 106 years. So how did... The San Antonio winery survive as essentially the lone remnant of this once thriving L.A. industry, a prominent remnant. Well, in 1910, a man named Santo Cambianica left his home of Berzo San Fermo, Lombardia. My accent's terrible. In Italy. Okay. He was an Italian dude. And he registered at Ellis Island and he traveled across the country with his sights set on downtown Los Angeles. So he was there in the early 1910s. He built relationships. He got to know the Italian-American community, which was very prominent in LA, by the way. Little Italy was a thing. Historic Little Italy. It's it's pretty cool. But he always wanted to start a winery, to live the American dream. So in 1917, he founded the San Antonio Winery, named San Antonio after St. Anthony, his patron saint. And now... At the time, it was an area east of downtown that was flourishing as a haven for vineyards. It's 1917. Both in two years, U.S. Congress passed the Volstead Act, 1919. And that effectively started prohibition in America and it jolted the wine industry. Prohibition, no alcohol, no wine. So most of the wineries in and around L.A. and throughout the United States went through a difficult time. But San Antonio Winery and Mr. cambianica they persevered. How? Why? Well, the archdeos of Los Angeles granted Santo permission to make wines for sacramental and ceremonial purposes. He had a strong relationship with the church and it saved his winery. The whispers are that there was a backroom deal based on Cambianica's Italian heritage and an indirect line with none other than the Pope himself. But whatever it was, the San Antonio winery could keep making wine for the altars, for communion, stuff like that. And it was the only winery in the area that was granted that permission. So they thrived. In 1933, which was in the middle of the Great Depression, nearly all of Los Angeles wineries were affected. And only San Antonio Winery was able to continue to grow as it was now the number one provider of altar wines in the entire region. So they continued with that and they rolled out the the actual commercial wines once Prohibition was lifted. And they were successful, but they were still a local winery. So in 1956, Cambianica passed away. And his nephew, Stefano Riboli, and his wife, Maddalena satangni they gained full ownership of san antonio winery and they went all out they began to look outside of los angeles for land for grapes but keeping the winery for tastings for production for bottling all that stuff but they knew that the quality of the grapes produced in northern california were surpassing those grown in southern california and there were none left in los angeles unless you want to go to alberra street and make wines from from the Avila adobe so they purchased vineyards in Monterey, uh, Rutherford, Napa Valley in the 1980s. And now, Stella Rose has four generations of family contributing to the success. Vineyards all over California. And it's one of the most awarded wineries in California. You wouldn't know it with the Stella Rose. I know it has a certain reputation. It's fun. It's good. At a big family party, crack out the those huge bottles. They're fun. But you can celebrate. This history, not just a San Antonio winery, 106 years, but wine country in Los Angeles, right there between Lincoln Heights and Chinatown. This is one of the coolest urban escapes and a true hidden gem in Los Angeles, San Antonio winery. Now, moving on to Los Angeles hidden gem number four, from a shrine to the days of wine country in Los Angeles to lake shrine now this is one that my colleague and close friend has talked about for years she is very very spiritual and though i am i'm my own type of spirituality i'm usually a little resistant reluctant let's say to the concept not of spirituality but anything that seems secular or religious So I'd always heard the name Lake Shrine and kind of what I thought is like, it's a temple with religious undertones. And I was like, "Ah, check it out. But nah. But that's, even though that is what this is, it's also not what this is. Lake Shrine. It's technically the Self-Realization Fellowship Lake Shrine. It is beautifully situated grounds off of Sunset right before PCH. And it was envisioned as a church of all religions, of all beliefs. And it's it's a meditation space. One, one of the things, a meditation space. But going there to meditate, let's say, in the spiritual sense and enjoy the earth, earth enjoy the world, enjoy Los Angeles. It's drawn millions of people over the decades. Each year, Lake Shrine accommodates 120,000 people. So it, it's pretty Again, I'm not going to call it a hidden gem, but it's something that you drive. You take that beautiful drive on sunset from the city to the sea. You drive right by without even really realizing what it is. Maybe you see the top of the top, Oh, what is that? Okay, I'm going to PCH. I'm going to the beach. But you go to the grounds. And you do need a reservation, at least now since COVID. And I'm, I'm told that if you go to one of the services, you don't need a reservation. But just be safe. Go to the website. I'll tell you more about that. But once you're on the grounds, there's waterfalls. Fountains, flowers, statues, white swans, ducks, grottos, lilies, and a Dutch windmill, which is used as a chapel. I mean, this is the very definition of peace, especially here in Los Angeles. Lake Shrine feels like a hideaway. It is. And it really does have a huge lake that's large and teeming with life. Koi fish, ducks, swans flying in and out of the area daily. And all the while you're in that lake, you're walking around, it's surrounded by gently rolling green verdant hills. I mean, this is truly, truly peace in the middle of Los Angeles. And there's a golden lotus archway with blue tile and gold lotus blossoms. And it's visible from everywhere on the grounds. This is where this gets real special. This archway frames what's called the Mahatma Gandhi World Peace Memorial. <laughs> yes, that Mahatma Gandhi. And It's an outdoor shrine. It's, it, it's a 1,000-year-old Chinese stone sarcophagus which holds ashes from Mahatma Gandhi. For those that aren't familiar, Gandhi was the man. Well, he was the man, but he was the man who employed non-violent protesting in the 1940s to lead the campaign for India's independence from British rule. He inspired people like MLK and civil rights leaders and freedom fighters all across the world. He's simply put one of the most important people in the 20th century in the world. And for the ashes of a man like this to be in Los Angeles, it's the only place his ashes Even one ash was approved to be placed outside of India. This is very significant and should speak to the fact. This is why I call Lake Shrine a hidden gem, even though people visit it. I don't think people, I don't, didn't really understand the significance. So, I mean, that alone is, is worldwide and amazing. But these grounds are just beautiful. And it's the fact that they honor different faiths different traditions, different religions. When you enter, you see the Court of Religions and it has monuments honoring, the f- honoring five major world religions. Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism. The idea is that there's one place where people can come and feel that their faith is recognized and honored. And for me in Los Angeles, man, The integration of everybody's faith, that's what it's about. Faith, race, religion, whatever you are, come as you are. This is LA, that's Lake Shrine. Now, you know me, I always got to get in the background. How did this Lake Shrine come to be? How did this come about? Well, it was once part of a site called Bison Ranch, Bison Ranch, which was owned by Thomas Ince, who's Thomas Ince, literally the first major movie man in Los Angeles. We're talking 1912. So he owned it and it was a ranch and it changed hands a few times. And one point by the 1920s, it was used as a rock quarry, which was owned by Alfonso Bell. Alfonso Bell, by the way, is the man who founded Bell Air. So Bell wanted to do something similar here. So he had filled in this, this ranch, filled in the canyon areas. He graded the area for development. But before he could finish it, he left a basin at the bottom. And now that basin was filled with the water from natural hot springs in the area. Think about that. I always love that. There's natural hot springs right there in like Pacific Palisades. Hot, hot springs, cold springs. And the basin was filled and it, it was a lake. It was called Lake Santa Inez, the only spring-fed lake in the city of Los Angeles. Think about that. Now that's a hidden gem. And by 1940, the lake was purchased by H. Everett McElroy known as Big Mac, another film guy. He was the superintendent of construction for 20th Century Studios. And what he did, he dredged the lake and used the area as a film set. But he cared for the land, lived on a houseboat on site, and he also constructed a water wheel, a Dutch windmill, that ended up becoming the first chapel of Lake Shrine. But he sold the land to a man named Joseph Gross, an oil company executive, for $250,000 in 1948. <laughs> and in a story that is very Los Angeles, especially going back to a recent podcast episode, Gross wanted to build a luxury hotel. This is 1948. That's what he was going to do with this land. But get this. One night, when he's in the process of designing the hotel, he had a dream that he said reoccurred 3 times in the middle of the lake this in the dream in the middle of the lake the property he just bought there was a platform with a podium and on that podium ministers from quote churches of all religions addressed thousands of attendees with inspirational speeches when mr gross awoke in a sweat in a haze he looked up the name church of all religions in a telephone book And he found a listing for something called the Self-Realization Fellowship Fellowship Church of All Religions, which was located in Hollywood. He was like, this this is beyond a coincidence. This is extraordinary. So he wrote a letter to be sent in the next day's mail, which described his dream and included an offer to sell this property that he was going to make into a hotel. But now he wanted to sell it to the Self-Realization Fellowship Church of All Religions. But rather than a way to response, this dream was haunting him. So the next day he phoned the church and he was transferred to a man named Paramahanasa Yogananda. And Yogananda initiated the conversation before Gross could even introduce himself or say why he was calling. He led with, you have some property for sale, don't you? When can I see it? And Mr. Gross said, I haven't even sent my letter yet. he, He was shocked. But again, this is all coming together. So he says, can we meet tomorrow afternoon? The next day he visited the site. Yogananda visited the site. And they immediately began the planning for an establishment of an open air shrine of all religions. Think about that. Talk about coincidences. Holy crap. So with the support of benefactors and donors... Yogananda acquired the property. And he said it reminded him of Kashmir in India. It's like the northernmost province, if I'm not mistaken. In 1949, he began construction, a temple, a meditation garden, and the Mahatma Gandhi Peace Memorial. The transaction was commenced and a public dedication of Lake Shrine took place on August 20th, 1950. So that's how that started. And who was Yogananda? He was born in India in 1893. And he entered monastic life after college. At the age of 27 in 1920, he arrived in the U.S. on a mission to teach yoga to people in the West. And that's when he founded the Self-Realization Fellowship. And Yogananda is a big deal. He has the autobiography of a yogi. He's one of the preeminent figures. This is important just for that perspective. Think of yoga in L.A. and what it's become in the United States. That's because of Yogananda. He felt that Southern California was open to new metaphysical concepts and that he would put down roots here. I mean, America in the 20s and 30s was fighting all kinds of issues, racism, discrimination, trouble accepting new ideas and people. But Yogananda found open arms in California. And the fellowship, the church of all religions, became quite a successful start for his operation. So, I mean, the Self-Realization Fellowship Lake Shrine, what a hidden gem. It's open Wednesday to Sunday, 9 to 4. Try to make reservations. It's lakeshrine.org to show up your spot. And parking is a beast. So be careful. And when you're trying to park, you're going to be like, this ain't a hidden gem. Who are all these cars? But it is worth it. And that is truly a hidden gem of Los Angeles. Now, hidden gem number three, which also involves some waterways in Los Angeles that may not be Immediately obvious. Talking about the Venice canals. I love, love the Venice Canals. I'm serious. I'm absolutely smitten. The romance, the beauty, the fact that we have something that feels authentically European right here in Los Angeles. And authentic is obviously an interesting choice of words because it started as a an outright copycat. But let me tell you the story about the canals because I gotta admit. I went to Venice all the time with my parents growing up, but it was always the boardwalk and maybe Abbott Kinney, but I didn't even know the canals existed. And there was a reason because this is the 80s and 90s. Let's discuss. So first, the canals are located right off 25th Street in Venice. And honestly, at least for me, if you didn't know you were there, you could walk right by them. I had a dozen times. It seems funny because it's a large area, but it's primarily in a neighborhood of houses that line these... Four canals that are about a quarter mile long a piece. And all along these channels are sidewalks and bridges that you could walk to, to take in views of this simply incredible piece of Los Angeles that is a hidden gem in plain sight. But now I get excited when I talk about Venice. Again, not just personal history, but I consider Venice... LA's most transformative neighborhood. I got to get into the detail on this. And this coincides perfectly with the canals, okay? And I'm going to start because for thousands of years, it was a marshy lagoon where where Venice is as a whole, but especially the canals. And it wasn't even inhabited by the tongva Gabrielino kids people. It was utilized for hunting and fishing, but it was just a marshy lagoon. Nobody lived there. Subsequently, it became something called the Rancho La Bayona, which was a, a land grant from the Mexican government when they owned L.A., Alta California, to Ignacio and Agustin Machado and Felipe and Tomas Telemontes. But it stayed undeveloped because, again, this is a marshy lagoon. So these are already, you know, the baseline. But I want to talk about the transformation of Venice and how the canals spearheaded that, right? 1905, a man named Abbott Kinney a tobacco millionaire had a vision. He wanted to develop a 14 mile beach resort town called Venice of America based on the town Venice in Italy of the same name. And he was very wealthy. Okay. Millionaire at the time and tobacco. I mean, this guy had money coming out. So he constructed this area, the, 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 marshy lagoon he dredged the land and built a system of canals of originally seven canals but eventually 13 they had names like altair cabrillo coral canal lion canal venus not venice venus canal and they lit the canals with torches and lights and it was romantic and he hired gondoliers from italy that would take guests on gondolas down these canals under these beautiful ornate arched bridges and it drew widespread publicity i mean this is gorgeous this is bringing europe not just to america but to la and the lots sold like hotcakes development started and it it really did i'm gonna post these pictures as you know on my story friday and the rest of the week it looked and felt like venice italy And he erected a pier. There had to be entertaining. There's Winwood Pier, 900 feet long, 30 feet wide. Casino, a tower. There was an ocean liner permanently docked beside the pier and a 3,500 seat auditorium for the Venice Assembly. Attractions, cafes, a ballroom. Eventually it grew so much, there were three piers at the end of these canals. And Venice was the place to be in all of Los Angeles. Till 1920. And everything came to a screeching halt. Kinney passed away. And the same year, the main pier, the Windward Avenue pier, the main source of income and employment in Venice was destroyed in a fire. So there was turmoil for five plus years. How to finance, how to manage existing conditions, how to keep the canals clean, how to maintain it. And Venice was independent at the time, so they didn't have that L.A. money. So they just couldn't really recover. By 1925, the roads, the water, the sewage systems, the canals badly needed repair. And the population kept coming in, but there was no money for upkeep. And perhaps more importantly, this is the beginning of car culture. And as more cars came in, there was no room for cars, for people to transport themselves. So the canals, these beautiful canals, which were now not as beautiful, were viewed by many as outdated. Again, L.A., city of the future, city of tomorrow. Blow them up, destroy them. So what they do, they try to save the canals. No, they filled in most of them. By 1929... There were only a handful left to make room for paved roads, including that traffic circle. You know that famous Venice traffic traffic circle? That used to be canals. But as if that wasn't bad enough, and this is all the transformation of Venice, 1929, the Ohio Oil Company came in, and there was the black gold rush in LA. There was oil all over the place. So they decided to see if Venice had any oil. And by golly, Venice did. They struck oil, and oil fever commenced. You look at these pictures, it's like those ones at Signal Hill. It's it's an exact parallel. There are oil derricks all over the place in Venice. I mean, we know LA is an oil city, but it's just crazy to see. We went from Venice of America to oil wells within a decade. And of course, with oil, there's immediate environmental and safety issues. Oil waste flooded the canals it blackened these, these once gorgeous canals with sludge. Schools near the oil wells were closed for safety reasons. The beach of Venice was horribly polluted. By 1940, the canals were in such disrepair, they were condemned by the city. And then as well as now, big money wins. So the area was just rezoned. More of the canals were filled in. By the 1950s, the area was so neglected. The canals were half empty, full of trash, oil remnants, sludge, residue. Venice? Once Venice of America, it was now called the Slum by the Sea. Now, fortunately, the slum had low rent. And the low rent attracted artisan immigrants and another transformation. They infused the area with culture. Venice, by the 1960s, became the epicenter for the beat generation, the hipsters, the true hipsters. And the Venice boardwalk was the heartbeat. But what about the canals? What about the canals? A neighborhood group, the Venice Canals Resident and Homeowners Organization, eventually renamed the much easier to say Venice Canals Association, was formed by new residents. 1977, they wanted to save these canals. They wanted to restore the canals. But for 15 years, infighting between homeowners, local representatives, and other interested parties ensured that these plans went nowhere. So as recently as 1992, these canals, once the, what made Venice, they did make Venice. They were an eyesore and they were in the way. But thank you, council member Ruth Galanter and VCA head Mark Galante. No relation, but very similar names. They finally came up with a plan that was environmentally friendly, child friendly, and lower cost. And it was approved by the Coastal, Coastal Commission and the many other city agencies involved. So all they needed was $12 million to restore the canals. And they got the approval. And the project it included dredging the canals, removing the now toxic soil, removing the crumbling sidewalks, replacing them with new sidewalks, rebuilding the bridges that go over the canals, and property owners to approve paying anywhere from about $6,000 to $8,000 apiece for 10 years for the overhaul. But they got it. Work began in 1992 in March. It was completed by 1993. So as a result of that completion, the Venice Canal Improvement Project, VCA had a carnival with gondolas, food, art, music, to celebrate the rehabilitation improvement and rebirth of the Venice Canals. Yet another transformation, just like when they first opened in 1906. Now that... Is a transformation. And 30 years later, the Venice canals remain awesome and off the beaten path, a hidden gem in plain sight. One of my favorite hidden gems in Los Angeles. All right. Now, LA's top five hidden gems. Number two, the Wat Thai Temple. Now, I lived right by it growing up. Okay, this is in North Hollywood, but this is like North, North Hollywood. We're talking basically Arlita, Panorama City style. And I'd always heard of and drove by this crazy ornate building on Coldwater and Roscoe. And I didn't really know what it was, didn't stop to think what it was. And simultaneously as I got more into food growing up, I'd heard about the Wat Thai Food Court. Lauded by everybody from Jonathan Gold to Eater LA to the LA Times. The Thai food paradise. The place to get the most authentic Thai food in Los Angeles, maybe outside of Jitlada, which I love. But it's a, it's a Thai food market, is what it was. But I was more concerned, more curious about this amazing temple, which is the very definition of hidden in plain sight. Listen to this it's, it's gorgeous. And amazing, this piece of architecture, this is the consummate, what is that? Especially being smack dab in the middle of the East Valley right there. I mean, the ornate detail of this structure would stand out anywhere on the planet. It is a showstopper and it does. It replicates the traditional Buddhist temples in Thailand. If you haven't seen it, again, I'll post the pictures, but look it up. But beyond this amazing physical structure, The Wat Thai of Los Angeles not only serves a religious purpose, it's the cultural center of the Southern California Thai community. And you got to remember that Los Angeles has the largest Thai population in the world outside of Thailand. There are approximately 150,000 Thai people in the U.S., 50,000 plus, which reside in L.A. So the, the Wat Thai Temple is officially known as the Theravada Buddhist Center. And the history and establishment of this thing is long and complicated. I'm going try to try to break it down for you. So there was, there was a general unrest in Southeast Asia. And there was something called the Oriental Exclusion Act in 1965. Which actually increased immigration from Thailand to the United States in the late 60s. So by 1970, a man named, and this is a tough pronunciation, Fra Damako Sacham a Thai Buddhist monk, was invited to Los Angeles and stayed. And he made himself available to the burgeoning Thai community in Los Angeles. And he returned to Thailand with a great enthusiasm to set up a Thai Buddhist temple in Los Angeles. There was none. So there was a Thai American Buddhist Association organized. And Dhamma Koa Sacham returned to Los Angeles and he stayed at a house on Sepulveda Boulevard that he converted into a residence for Thai Buddhist monks. And now that was officially unofficial regarded as the first Thai Buddhist temple in the United States. But the state of California wouldn't grant permission to build or expand the premises to erect a temple. This is just a, a house on Sepulveda Boulevard. So by 1972, they found a piece of property on Conterra Street, again, right near Roscoe and Coldwater. 2.2 acres of land and it was purchased with funds donated by an unnamed wealthy man in Bangkok. Again, very mysterious. And the new location at the time had three antiquated buildings, large enough to accommodate a number of religious structures. But most of the buildings were pulled down, newer buildings erected. So they laid the foundation for the main hall, the two-story Thai temple in 1972 and there was construction and back and forth and the thai community was building and finally on october 21st 1979 there was a grand ceremony to mount the gable spire also known as the yak chow fa and this is a big deal you'll see what i mean the spire it, it's the Essentially, like equivalent is a cross on a Catholic church, right? But this is not that, so it's 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 the same symbolism, if you will. But the Supreme Patriarch of Thailand presided over this ceremony. That was how big of a deal it was. And in December, the King and Queen of Thailand presided over a ceremony casting the the principal Buddha image for Wat Thai of Los Angeles. This is very spiritual. This is very holy. And the king and queen of Thailand. That's how important this was. So now. It's the Wat Thai temple. And with the large population of Thai people. And Thai Americans. There's also refugees from Cambodia. Vietnam. And especially Laotians. Who are participants in the religious activities of the Wat Thai. And that alone would make it a hidden gem. But this food market. I I am highly encouraging you to check this out. Because. This is where it's kind of really at for for what to do because you could check out both now it's weird because the, the market doesn't necessarily go on every weekend the online info is a little spotty but when it does it's Saturday and Sunday from eight to five and it started in the 1980s it was just one or two families selling food Thai food to feed the parents and grandparents of the children who are attending classes at the temple. And it was originally located beneath the building, but he became so popular. This was, again, there weren't many Thai restaurants in Los Angeles in the 1980s, and this wasn't a restaurant, but it was the authentic Thai food. So it outgrew the, the space beneath the building. And now, anywhere from 17 to 25 vendors gather to sell things like papaya salad prepared in large stone mortars, sliced ripe mango, those Thai mangoes, mango with sticky rice, grilled skewers of marinated pork, Curls of deep-fried chicken skins. Boxes of crab-fried rice. Sour pork sausages. I mean, Thai gelato? Anyone? This is a really fun event, too. It's an outdoor food court. And you get the way they do It's kind of, kind of strange to me. But you exchange cash for these $1 and $2 tokens. Orange and purple plastic tokens. And you present them to the vendors like Monopoly money. And it's it's kind of like a really cool experience with some of the best and most legit authentic Thai food in L.A. And this is definitely an important and historic place that should be on your L.A. bucket list. Come for the food. Stay for the history of the Wat Thai Temple, the Theravada Buddhist Center in North Hollywood. This really is a hidden gem of Los Angeles. Okay. I'm excited for this one. I think... I think some people might have a little controversy for me calling this a hidden gem because it's definitely not hidden but it is a gem and i don't know how many people go there as tourists in their own city to check this out because i sure do i love it the port of los angeles what i mean on the surface this seems like the opposite of a hidden gem this is big burly loud it's also the biggest shipping port in the united states but man oh man is this an experience if you haven't seen this in person the only thing that comes to mind for me is modern marvel you think logistics supply chain shipping ordering shoes electronics furniture bikes any kind of goods this is where it goes down and you know what this is like the tableau for for artists for me because when you look at it the colors the shapes the action the activity all on the water the the teal is that is that vincent thomas bridge is that teal that's sort of just a contrast a beautiful contrast over this busy shipping port that's so much organization going it's it's incredible so it's just how do you get there you take the vincent thomas bridge and you see america's port it's 7,500 acres of land and water with 43 miles of waterfront, 25 cargo terminals, 82 container cranes. Those are those big dogs. These are those container the cranes that need to lift the shipping containers. Eight container terminals, 113 miles of rail just on the docks, and the cargo coming into this port represents 20 percent of all cargo. Coming into the United States, I don't know that you can find one economic epicenter in the U.S. that carries this much value and importance. This port is the primary gateway for trade between the U.S. and Asia and the top container port for trade with China. We're talking $500 billion of economic activity every year creating jobs for over 300,000 people in the LA area. And it's beautiful to look at. I'm serious. But I want to get more stats than I'm getting into this history. So in 2022, the Port of LA handled 112,000 cars, right? That's a lot of cars. 219 million tons of cargo in 9.9 million shipping containers. It's a cruise port as well. 229 cruise ships. With 995,000 passengers, there is a lot going on here. What's being shipped? Glad you asked. Top five imports, furniture, auto parts, apparel, plastic, footwear. Top five exports, pet and animal feed. I find that important. That's the number one export from this port. It's cool. Paper and waste paper, soybeans, Fabrics, mostly raw cotton and recycled metal. So that's what's going in and out of those shipping containers, if you're wondering, because I was. Top five partners, China slash Hong Kong, $134 billion of trade each year, right there at the Los Angeles port. Japan, $38 billion. Vietnam, $33 billion. Taiwan, $20 billion. South Korea, $16 billion, billion. This is the lifeblood of Los Angeles and you have to see it in person to really appreciate what an incredible feat of human accomplishment this is. And as always in LA, and as always on In a Minute with Evan Lovett, there's history. We just need to dig for it. So let's dig. In 1542, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo discovered what he called the Bay of Smokes. And that would be the, what we know as the south-facing San Pedro Bay. San Pedro Bay. It was originally a shallow mudflat, too soft to support a wharf, no good for shipping. So visiting ships had two choices. This is for the next two, three centuries. You either stay far out in anchor and have your goods and passengers ferried to shore or just beach your ship out there. Annoying. But it's worth noting that Southern California, for all of its beaches, did not offer much in the way of areas for quality seaports to facilitate shipping, especially before modern technology. So enter Phineas Banning. Yes, those of you from Banning represent. Here in the title is father of the Los Angeles Harbor because in the 1850s and 60s, not only did he found the Harbor City of Wilmington, he helped build the entire system using stagecoaches. He would move recently arrived people and goods throughout the Southland, post offices, newspapers, in the Harbor area, making the Harbor shipping ready. And during the Civil War, this is how far back we're going, he also made 60 acres of harbor territory available to the Union Army. And don't forget, Los Angeles was a secessionist area at the time. We were with the Confederacy, if you want to just go by the votes in the down the middle. But Banning was with the Union. And they had thousands of troops at what was known then as Fort Drum, kind of the predecessor to Wilmington. But why that's important is because the port's presence grew where you have army, where you have military, you need shipping, you need equipment, you need supplies. So by by 1869, just after the Civil War, Los Angeles and the San Pedro Railroad were transporting goods from the harbor in central LA. And that was the first railroad in Southern California because of the port. So think about that growing simultaneously, the railroad, the port, this is the roots of why LA became what it was. And it was successful. And the Banning family was making money and the, the port was developing. But by the 1890s, the newly founded Santa Monica wanted a piece of the port action. San Pedro was humming along. But the main advantage for Santa Monica was that L.A. owned their would-be harbor, whereas San Pedro was independent. This was big money and huge debate as a little aside, can you imagine if Santa Monica became the port for Los Angeles? I mean, our whole world would be flipped because Santa Monica wouldn't be Santa Monica. But whatever. So this is 1890s. The port was handling 500,000 tons of shipping, the San Pedro port at that point. And Collis P. Huntington, rail magnate, Southern Pacific Railroad. He wanted that port of Los Angeles at Santa Monica. And he built a wharf. In 1893, he's, he's staking his claim. This is where shipping's coming in. This is the guy that ran the railroads. Very important man. However, another very important man, LA Times publisher Harrison Gray Otis was pushing for federal support of the Port of Los Angeles at San Pedro. So this was a battle known as the Great Free Harbor Fight between two powerful, influential magnates, each with enormous wealth battling for control of shipping in what would become the greatest shipping port in the United States. Finally, Harrison Gray Otis, the man with the newspaper, the man with the bullhorn, the man with the bully pulpit, ended up convincing the commission, and that's an indication of how influential the LA Times was. But he still needed a solution. San Pedro's not part of LA. How are we going to have our port of Los Angeles there? So not an orthodox solution. (laughs) was found they created the shoestring district you ever see that map of la i'm looking at one right now in the studio it is so cool la's got a funky shape but there's that shoestring at the bottom connecting to wilmington and san pedro and what that was again 16 miles long less than a mile wide la annexed that area all the way down to the harbor and by 1909, San Pedro and Wilmington relinquished control and thus became the port of Los Angeles. So by the time the Panama Canal opened in 1914, that was integral to the growth. L.A. was strategic on America's west coast. So the harbor would become the main port of call for Pacific and Atlantic trade. Long Beach port was found in 1911. It solidified the dual sea ports. By the 1930s, there was a massive expansion of the port. They felt, constructed a breakwater three miles out, two miles in length. And by World War II, the port was used for shipbuilding. Very important research when you're in the war. Employing more than 90,000 people. 1959, there was a company called Matson Navigation Companies. Hawaiian Merchant. And they delivered 20 containers to the port. And the port finally shift to containerization like it is in the modern sense. And then the Vincent Thomas Bridge opened in 1963, improving access to the port, allowed further expansion. By 1985, the port handled a million containers for the first time. By 2013, more than half a million containers were moving through the port every month. It's continued to grow ever since. It is the largest port in the United States for the last 23 years. And the Port of Los Angeles, in my opinion, is best appreciated by this. Th- this might be the unsung gem. Because nobody that I know really talks about it. The Vincent Thomas Bridge. This, again, I don't know if the color's teal. It's like a blue-green. It's like very striking against the sky and against all the colors of the containers in the port. But it's a 1,500-foot-long suspension bridge. And it links San Pedro with Terminal Island. And it's the only suspension bridge in the Los Angeles area. It's named for... Vincent Thomas, who was an assemblyman who championed the construction. And now it's the fourth largest suspension bridge in California. And the height, 185 feet. But it is a beautiful perspective when you're driving over just to see that port and everything that goes on. And I wish I could drive and take pictures at the same time or pull over. You can't. But it's just a wonder to see. But luckily... There's also something called the Iconic Bridge where you can stop and enjoy. This is also in that that port area. It's a pedestrian bridge that runs across the Wilmington Waterfront Park. And you can see the port from a bird's eye view. It's beautiful. I also got to mention the USS Iowa battleship is there. The lead ship in the last class of U.S. Navy battleships to be built by the United States. Served World War II. Hosted three presidents. There's also the SS Lane Victory, another ship built in 1945, served in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. And there's the Los Angeles Harbor Fire Museum. So there's a lot to do with the port, but just enjoy the modern marvel because, man, when we talk about hidden gems, there's nothing hidden about that port, but it is an absolute gem that's hidden in its appreciation. And people sort of celebrating the port and what it means for Los Angeles. So, one thing to do in Los Angeles this week? I gave you five. Told you this was a special episode. But I'm serious. Let's keep digging and appreciating that Los Angeles history and culture. It's everywhere. You just need to look for it. Thank you for listening to episode 33 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Each and every episode is a journey for me from research to exploration to dialogue with you. And I hope you're enjoying it because if you are, please give me that five-star rating. Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you're using. If you love the podcast, leave a review. You don't know how to leave a review? Send me a DM. I will walk you through it. It is super helpful. Every review helps. And the most recent review is featured in the episode Snippet, so you might get your name up in lights on a uh, story. Lastly, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share. Thank you again for supporting In A Minute with Evan Lovett. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.